Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. This has been kind of an odd week for me. I I feel fine. Like there's not like any concerns in my life right now. Still, you know, my my stress levels are still fairly low. Like as I've talked about, my emotions are pretty well stabilized. But recently, I um I changed jobs and I was able to uh I was able to pull some money out of a 401k and use that to pay off some debt. So I'm I'm much better in a place financially than I was before starting this job. Plus the job pays a little bit more and I'm just in a better position. Uh, so I started looking at like the possibility of like getting into my own place because right now I, I I'm renting a room. It is a really big room. It's fucking massive as far as like that goes. Uh, it was certainly a better deal than I was finding anywhere else. Uh, everybody here knows about my background, so I don't have to like hide that. Not that we really get into big conversations much, but it is comforting to know that everybody here already knows that and doesn't judge me poorly for it. And it, for the most part, it's a pretty quiet, um, calm, clean environment. Uh, the only downside I would say is that I can't have a dog. And if I were to have company over, should I start dating, then it, it might be a little awkward to have someone over. And most of that's in my head. Like a lot of that has to do with the fact that I feel like I'm 41. I should have my own place. I should have some structure I should have some some stability to show for my life. And, you know, I recently I, I did a quick like couple days worth of just perusing uh, the uh, the dating sites just to kind of get an idea what, what the fuck I've, you know, what I'll be getting myself into eventually. And it's still a, a complete nightmare. Dating dating sites are still an absolute shit show and are absolutely wrecking any kind of reasonable dating experience for people in this country, in this world, probably. Uh, but what I also found was that of my age range, that seems to be a fairly reasonable, like, ask is that you you be somewhat established and be somewhat, like, stable. And while I'm not unstable, I am renting a room. And so, you know, not not that that's the main reason why I want to get into my place, but it's a, it's a factor. You know, I do understand that at some point I'll be dating and at some point I'll want to find, like, a relationship with somebody that I'd hope to share my space with. And it wouldn't really be, it would seem just awkward to try to do that here. It has in the past. I mean, my last uh, girlfriend, she never came over. I didn't ever have her over. There were some reasons why it was just easier as far as like travel time and stuff. But it also just had to do with like how awkward the space is. It's not, it's a room. It's got a bed. It's got some tables and uh, I have like some little, workstations and stuff set up and there's space to move around and it's not cramped but it's not set up to have like company over i don't have like couch and tv set up you know my tv is at the foot of my bed i just you know have kind of it's my living space but it's not a living space for others to really participate in so she never came over we were together over a year and she never came over and in some regards that was kind of a sticking point for her like she was a little upset even though it was just logistically also easier but i got it like i mean some in some ways i am a little embarrassed about the fact again that i'm 41 and i'm still renting a room 
Now, one of my roommates is of my same age and she doesn't seem affected by it at all. Probably like me sees it as an opportunity to save some money while still really living in some relative comfort, which is really what it comes down to. Now, all, all that kind of piled into what the hell I'm even talking about. I just started looking for a place. Rent here in Portland is legitimately absurd. The amount of money that you would have to make to live on your own here is just, it's absurd. I, I make I make okay money. Like I don't I don't make um terrible money. It's not I'm not gonna retire anytime soon. I'm not like killing it, but I make okay money. And there's no way that I could afford an apartment here. Absolutely no way. There's no way that I could afford a house. There's no way I can afford a condo. You know, I was looking at manufactured homes and that would be like stretching things. If I were to get myself into that whole mess and I don't even know where to start there. Now there's a couple that I'd looked at and I thought, oh, this might work. And then I started like lowering my standards. And ultimately what I walked away with is feeling kind of depressed about the whole thing. Like the concept of being able to move out and live on my own. While I see so many people able to do that, I am baffled, baffled at how they're able to. I There's no fucking way. Even if I, even if I cut every single bit of my spending and never spend a dollar on anything outside of food and the basic necessities to keep a place livable. There is no way, none whatsoever. I mean, yeah, I have student loans. Those are maybe $200 a month. And then I have my car payment. It's a little high. It's 230, but other people have these same things. And somehow alone, they're able to afford living here. And I cannot fucking wrap my head around it. And what I walked away from feeling like was that I I mean, am I just stupid? <laughs> I know I'm not, but it, I mean, like what, it, what is the piece of this puzzle that I'm missing? Like, even if I donated plasma and on the side had another gig, I don't think I could afford anything reasonable in this city. Like it is absurd. A regular studio apartment that's 230 to 300 square feet starts out at 900 to $1,100. And that is in a shithole. One of those places you shared a fucking pocket door with your neighbor, a giant pocket door was $900 a month for a 300 square foot studio apartment where the bed, you slid it into the wall for quote unquote more space. It was a full size bed. I wouldn't even be able to fit on the fucking thing. You can't make it bigger because it's built into the wall. It's part of the, you know, the whole like ambiance, I fucking guess. And it's a pocket door. Like it's not, I'm not exaggerating this. It was literally a full size, like conference style pocket door that was maybe three, three doors size, maybe 12 feet to 15 feet long that just slid into the wall. That was your separation between the other person. You paid $900 a month for that luxury. I couldn't fucking believe it. I knew it was bad, but I had no idea. And so I felt set back. Like I felt like, well, I just like, it sort of just took the winds right out of my sail. I mean, I had, uh, I had paid off all the money. I, I told myself I was going to, I sold some computer parts that I told myself I was going to. I bought a couple of things for myself, very reasonable things that will last a while and have utility that aren't just for play that are part of like what, what helps me stay happy, you know? So it wasn't like, I didn't just blow it on a one-time thing that I wouldn't have any, you know, return on investment for. I blew it on something that, yeah, it's games and it's like, you know, video game shit, but 
that's something that brings me joy. I play those as a part of like my de-stressor and things that I, I really enjoy so that I didn't see that as like a waste of money. Um, though I probably could have held off and just suffered through like the, the equipment that I had and probably been fine. But anyway, so I bought that for myself. I was very responsible with the rest of the money. And then I saw like just how unreasonable it looked like it was going to be for me to get into a place. And yeah, I felt defeated. I still feel a little defeated by that because I, I mean, I feel like the amount of money that I'm going to have to make in order for me to get into a place, you know, and it's not just that it's knowing that when I start looking, I'm going to have to like fill out all these applications again. The last time I looked for a place, I filled out 19 applications. I turned them in two of which asked for after uh, asked for a follow-up because of my felony the rest of which just de denied me with no no reason they said they just simply said no some two two or three of them ghosted me refused to return my calls would not when i went to the office they would not come out to talk to me one of them just refused to even acknowledge me as, a, as an applicant it was fucked up this was not that long ago it's not like i was still on paper um the two that asked for follow-up i provided uh, I provided one with like a huge file of um, previous renters, uh, previous uh, employers, people that I had done community organizing with, a video of one of my verbal presentations that I'd given, uh, a, a letter from my PO who I hadn't talked to in 12 years, just a, a stack of shit. She sent it down to her boss and within 20 minutes the boss called back and still said no. So that process of potentially looking for a place is not appealing. And to couple that with the fact that my options will be extremely limited to what I can afford, that I will have to just find an undesirable part of town if I'm lucky, or even better, a part of town that's 50 minutes away or an hour away from where I work and undesirable and puts me further away from people that I like to spend time with. You know, just, just considering that, I'm like, well, I'm just going to stay here. But then we're back to me feeling like, well, I'm too old in a lot of ways to just be renting a room somewhere. Um, and it's it's like also that feeling of I feel like I must be the only one in this town of my age range that is struggling with this. I know I'm not. I know people that are renting rooms that are my age, that have, you know, good jobs, that just are, are taking a break from trying, you know, they're in between shit but I'm not in between stuff. This was a step up for me. So there's that kind of floating around. And it, while it's not like, it's not like I've given up. I don't feel like drinking. I'm not depressed, depressed. The thought of it was depressing. It just, it, it took the oomph out because I was feeling pretty jazzed about having been caught up on things. So I gave up on looking, not gave up. I stopped looking because it was driving me crazy. I was spending all my time like hyper-focused on this. And I... Well, I made an impulsive buy, which I haven't done in a while. I, I got a tattoo. Uh, it was a walk-in. I didn't expect to pay as much as I did. I was going for like this happy hour. It was like a hundred bucks and I ended up buying a much more expensive tattoo because I still do that. I still have that impulsivity. I still have that kind of compulsion. And it, and it is a part of the reason why at times I don't have as much money as I probably should. It's been a, it's been a lot better in the last six months or two years. Uh, the fact that I used the money that I got and paid off all of my credit card debt is an indicator that I've gotten better with that. Uh, but I did. I got a tattoo. It covers up an old prison tattoo that I had that was just utter garbage. So it served a, a dual purpose. It got me in connection with somebody in the tattoo industry that I think is pretty cool, that I, th I think will have, you know, do some work in the future. And I mean, he was even talking about how the tattoo had sat in his, his 
folder, his uh, his portfolio for like six months because nobody nobody chose it. And it was bumming him out. So he was really happy that somebody picked it. And it was the only one out of all the folders that I really liked. So it was like, I mean, it was a good experience, but it also was just sort of, they did come with a little bit of that guilt and shame of like, ugh, you know, uh, here I am again, like just blowing my money now that I'm not feeling like I'm going to save anything and I, I'm not going to be able to afford anything. Uh, it was kind of, it felt kind of a, like kind of a setback, which I mean, the grand scheme of things isn't, isn't true. I know it's not true. I have potential to make a lot more money at my job. I could easily wait that out. I could within a couple years have my 401k back into a place where I could, I could take a loan against it as opposed to, you know, cashing it out and use that as a down payment on something. I'm not ever going to be able to buy a house. I'm perfectly willing to accept the terms of that. There's just no way. I mean, unless the housing market drastically changes, but I mean, 20% on a house now is like 80 grand. There's no fucking chance. I'm going to put together 80 grand. I'm not the kind of person to put together that kind of money. I'm not the kind of person to work a job that gives me the ability to make that kind of money, to save that kind of money in any reasonable amount of time. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Ultimately, uh, FHA loans are a joke. Nobody's taking them right now. Or if they are, it's for like, you know, again, a shithole in some bullshit neighborhood that nobody wants to buy. I'm not trying to do that. So I think I really just need to overcome a lot of like internal ego bullshit. I, I, my living situation is not a uh, indicator of the kind of person I am or of the kind of value I could have in a relationship. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't be in a relationship. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't be considering those things when the time is right. I'm not ready for it. And it's not something I'm considering now. So, you know, I'm putting like a lot of weird future thought shit into my current living situation. Yes, I want a dog. Really bad. I, I do. But, but, uh, you know, I'm okay with not having one right now. Like, I'll just have to kind of wait that out. It shouldn't be a reason for me to feel like all, all hope is lost or, or anything like that. Really need to focus on the fact that my living situation is not terrible. That I, I live in a, a, a good spot. Yeah, it's going to be a barrier to dating. So, so what? Like, my felony is going to be a barrier to dating. It's just part of, part of things. It's just how it is. Uh, honestly, if the person I'm, I'm really interested in cannot look past the fact that, um, this is what my living situation is currently in a town where rent is legitimately absurd, then, uh, maybe that's not somebody I want to talk to, you know, like, I mean, I know that's a big factor of it too, but yeah. So I, there, there was just a lot of stuff that had come up while I was looking and a lot of stuff that made me realize that I'm not quite there yet, even though I did pay off some debts and I'm, I'm doing better. You know, I have chronically changed jobs. I have I have made decisions that have put me in this position. And if I want to change that, then I need to continue to stay the course like my my credit is continuing to go up. My um, my situation is improving. I have a good job. I have a job that I like that I I understand. I have been uh, having no problems really understanding the moving parts of it. There's been no like uh, dropping the ball as far as training. I have people that are supporting me in that position. I have a clear trajectory of where I could go in that company. And so, you know, I may have found a lot of that stuff later in life, but overall I'm in a good place. And I, I spend time with people that don't give a shit that I rent a room somewhere. They could care less. Uh, so I'm sure I'll find a partner that feels the same way when that, that time comes again, not, not even on the table. It's not something I'm interested in. So it's weird that I was kind of like thinking about that 
as I was looking at these places. Anyways, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Uh, I also had like this weird, I've been having these weird interactions with people where this, there's this person that I, I, I had helped talked into, talked in, uh, I had helped talk, uh, into re- going into rehab. They'd made the decision, but I helped kind of support that. Like I was trying to be supportive. I thought it was a great decision. I, it's just somebody that I really felt, um, had, a, was really struggling and was just not finding their path. And I was like, yes, let's, you know, I feel like I was doing the right thing. Like I, I, I seem to have been doing. And then they got out of rehab and they fucking stopped talking to me. And they I don't have, I don't understand how people have this kind of weird wishy-washy relationship with communicating with people. I guess I kind of do, but I always respond to people. So, you know, this person was like sending me a question like, Hey, do you know anybody that knows how to do X? And I would reply in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. And then they didn't look at the response for three weeks. And when, when they got, you know, I, I brought up, Hey, it'd be cool if we could catch up. I'd like to see how you're doing and see how rehab has gone. Um, like what was the experience like for you? I'd like to, to talk about that. And they looked at the response and then just simply didn't reply. And I, that kind of hurt my ego, like a little bit, just the fact that I felt like we had a good rapport built around the fact that they were going towards recovery. They were going, you know, struggling with it. We had talked a lot before and then now all of a sudden it's just nothing. And one thing is that previously I would feel like this had something to do with me. Like I did something wrong. I pushed them away somehow, or I treated them poorly, or I did something, but I know that's not true. And I know this just honestly doesn't have anything to do with me, but it does remind me of how just, you know, flaky people can be currently in general, not everybody. Clearly I have friends that are not flaky. I have friends that communicate in a reasonable way. I have friends that will answer a question or at least look at the answer to the question they asked, you know, or answer uh, or participate in in the back and forth, you know, like if I have friends that if they went to rehab, they would reach out and they would be like, hey, and we would have a conversation about that. So I just have to come to terms with the fact that this person doesn't see that situation the same way that I no longer am somebody that they have an interest in communicating with. That probably means that the only reason they were communicating with me was because they felt they could get they could garner something from me and there was no value in the the relationship outside of that. And I'm fine with it. Honestly, so that's kind of where I guess where all that went. Usually this would harm me in some way. Like I'd feel like put off, not put off, but I'd feel like I would. I would take this personally. I'd be sad about it. I'd be upset. You know, I feel like they they were, you know, this or that. And I mean, you know, so what? I helped them get into rehab. Maybe it went well. Maybe it didn't. That's that's it. That's the uh, that's the story. So if that's all that ever happens, then that's fine. The fact they have moved on is, you know, the the way they went are, are going about it is kind of irritating. But whatever. If I just stop communicating and they don't ever reply, then cool. Like I just need to allow that to be a, a a thing, and I am in a place where that is a thing. Like fine. It's I guess the way that it went, the way they went about it was kind of awkward and irritating. But you know, again, at the end of the day, I don't. I just don't really care. I hope they're doing well. I have other people that I can concern myself with and spend my time with. This wouldn't really be the case, you know, previously. This is this is still kind of a new reaction for me. So anyways, let's get into the stoic reading and move on from this sort of weird check-in I'm doing and uh, and then get into the next set of steps. All right, let's get right into the daily stoic here. February 1st, for the hot-headed man, 
Keep this thought handy when you feel a fit of rage coming on. It isn't manly to be enraged. Rather, gentleness and civility are more human and therefore manlier. A real man doesn't give way to anger and discontent, and such a person has strength, courage, and endurance, unlike the angry and complaining. The nearer a man comes to calm mind, the closer he is to strength. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations 11.18.5b Why do athletes talk trash to each other? Why do they deliberately say offensive and nasty things to their competitors when the refs aren't looking? To provoke a reaction. Distracting and angering opponents is an easy way to knock them off their game. Try to remember that when you find yourself getting mad, anger is not impressive or tough. It's a mistake. It's a weakness. Depending on what you're doing, it might even be a trap that someone laid for you. Fans and opponents called boxer Joe Lewis the ring robot because he was utterly unemotional. His cold, calm demeanor was far more terrifying than any crazed look or emotional outburst would have been. Strength is the ability to maintain a hold of oneself. It's being the person who never gets mad, who cannot be rattled, because they are in control of their passions rather than controlled by their passions. Okay, I kind of half agree with this, and then I, I have some serious issue with the other half. The first half, I do agree. There is absolutely nothing manly about, about showing your anger, about expressing your anger in an unhealthy way. There is nothing masculine about being unhealthily upset in a way that the, the, what comes out is yelling and screaming and throwing things and punching things. And I know so many men who feel this way. I have been this way in my past. And it, it isn't gender specific, obviously. But I think I understand kind of the focus on it because it seems to be gender normative for men to bottle up all their emotions until it becomes a, an, a whole volcano of bullshit. And then they react poorly and they break things and they do terrible shit. Women obviously have the capacity to do this. Non-binary folks, everybody has this capacity to react poorly to anger, but it is typically kind of steered towards this ideal that men act this way. And there's also sort of a societal gaslighty bullshit stance that it's okay. It's understood. Men just have a lot they have to take on. They can't show their emotions because that would make them weak, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, if that were the case, then they wouldn't show the emotion of anger <laughs> but it's like it's just placated and it's just allowed and accepted in a weird way. And I I've seen it often in my life, you know, with with this idea, you know, because I have had a lot of pressures in my life to act a certain way as a man. And a part of that was this, this idea of, you know, it's okay if you get angry and, and blow up and do all these things because, you know, it's just what men do. Or you need to blow off some steam so you do something violent or you do something um explosive. And it's it's all bullshit. It's all 100% junk. It's not necessary. It's unreasonable. And it's a burden that we place on everybody around us that they should just accept our outbursts. Uh, I don't conform to that or subscribe to that any longer. I used to struggle with my anger to the point of having explosions and I would react in a, in a terrible way because I didn't know how to regulate. And that's the part of the other half that I take certain issue with. There is still this weird concept that emotions somehow are bad, that there is a good and a bad type of emotion. A lot of it having to do with the fact that we've tied so many emotions to poor reactions that they've just become viewed and seen as bad. Emotions just are. I've said this before. I'll say it fucking until I die. Emotions just are. They're literally chemical fucking components of our body. 
Our body doesn't know the fucking difference. It doesn't understand what these emotions are. We tie words, verbiage. Uh, we tie incidences. We tie thought patterns to these emotions. We tie reactions to these emotions. There is nothing chemically wrong with the things that we consider anger or, or happiness or you know certain aspects of pain, emotional pain, that heavy, you know, just emptiness that can consume you in in grief. It's just it's just is. It is not good or bad. A lot of the times those emotions exist as a defense for our bodies to work through the things that we are experiencing. And then we come along as conscious thinkers and we decide, well that's anger. Anger bad. And that's happiness. Happiness good. I mean, in the right hands and the wrong hands, either one of those could be completely flipped around. I know people who have been so twisted by their fucking experiences that they find happiness in causing harm to others. True, unreasonable happiness. But that emotion's only good. That can't be true. There must be something else. But that's just the fucking case. The word sadist exists to explain people who derive true happiness out of and pleasure out of causing harm. That completely removes the possibility that it can only be a positive thing. Same with anger. There are people that use anger, that bodily function of anger, the feeling, the adrenaline that can come with anger, and use it in places like the ring to fight. Use it when training to push weight. They will work up the same feeling, the same emotion to push another fucking rep, to get a little closer to the finish line, whatever other kind of thing that can utilize such an explosive amount of energy. Uh, but somehow anger is tied to it and it's made to, to, to be this other negative thing. And I say all that to say that there's no reason and there's really no way to, con to stop your body from having an emotion. You can only control your your uh, you can only control your relationship for the things that trigger those emotions and you can only control your reaction to them unless you're some kind of like next level monk or you're taking medications or or something along those lines you're not going to just be able to shut those down joe lewis not showing emotion in the ring isn't because that he was experiencing those emotions and then suppressing them it was because he had conditioned himself to not be triggered by emotions while he was in that that situation that is exactly what was happening. Based on that, there wouldn't be a case where somebody could get his goat and rile him up because he has conditioned himself to not hear those things, to not care about those things. So therefore, there was no emotional response to that. It's no different than happiness. It's no different to, than, than it is to any other emotion that we have. We can condition ourselves to feel more happy just by sitting with happiness longer, just by allowing ourselves to express it in a fuller way. There was a study that was done that if you show genuine, open, expressive happiness at the sight of someone, that person will become conditioned in a way that they will express and feel happiness at seeing you. They will just feel it because they will see that your reaction is so positive when they come around that it just makes them feel happy. This happens with anger too. This happens with any other emotion that we tie these words to. The same things that arise that anger out of us that we then tie to these poor reactions could then shape how people see us and how they react to us and how their emotions trigger. It's all, it's all regulation. We regulate how we react and we start working on the things that 
allow us to become triggered by certain emotions. But those emotions just are. They just are. They're not good. They're not bad. And fucking suppressing them is a ridiculous idea. And I don't think the book was really trying to say that, but that's exactly how it sounded. Suppressing emotions that have usually dangerous responses tied to them can lead to some serious harm. How many of us out there have have suppressed the feeling of happiness, kept it under wraps, so they don't want to be embarrassed? They don't want somebody to say something poorly to them. For me, I do that more often than I should because I, when I was younger, was bullied by my parents, by kids around me, for being overly expressive with my happiness. So now it's muted. I still get like jazzed up about some things and I still express, you know, I outwardly express my happiness, that feeling uh, to, to some things, but it still comes with some reservations. There's always a, there's always a second guessing to that. Sometimes I suppress it. Sometimes I keep that to myself because I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want somebody to make fun of me. I wasn't born with that. That was given to me over time. Those are learned responses to a feeling, a, a, a chemical reaction in my body that, that goes off, and I've learned those ways of dealing with it. And I can unlearn them too. I used to be even more muted than I am now. I mean, now I'm pretty good about being open and allowing myself to express my, my happiness and my joy, but it wasn't like it used to be. I mean, I was the person that would like run up and hug my friends, like run up and hug my friends. And like, if something, if somebody gave me something cool to like, really, this is so awesome. And I'm working on that because I want to be able to be free with that kind of stuff. But this all just kind of relates to what the book was saying. There's, if you, if we can like kind of basically manipulate ourselves in a healthy way to react properly, appropriately to our different emotions, then it should never matter if we have those emotions. And if we don't like having those emotions, then we need to change our relationship with them, not try to suppress them. Step 10, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. This one, particularly out of all these steps, is absolutely my favorite one. The reason why this one's my favorite one is because for me, a lot of the times, uh, well, one, this came kind of naturally. Now, I used to take responsibility, quote unquote, in a shameful way to absolve myself of guilt and to try to allow myself to be uh, martyred in weird ways so that I wouldn't have to feel bad about the thing that I did. I would make people feel bad about me having done the thing or feel bad for me for feeling bad or whatever other kind of weirdly narcissistic shit. So when I was able to kind of come to terms with how ridiculous that was, as I grew into the program, as I grew out, I guess now, I started to see that there were aspects of what I was doing that were right. It was my motivations that were wrong. Um, the taking constant inventory doesn't have to be a shameful exercise. It's, it's a, daily, a daily practice. At the end of the day, look at the things I've done, see where I may have been harmful or sarcastic or obnoxious or mean or rude. And reflect on those. Also reflected on the things that I did positively. The things that I probably could work on a little better. Reflected on those as well. And then if in any of that, there was somebody that I may have caused harm to, then really look at what I did, how I could absolve that, so that the other person uh, understands that my motivations weren't harmful, because they shouldn't be. They weren't full of malice, because they shouldn't be. And take full responsibility. You know, an apology should, should come quickly, and it should, it definitely should come with ownership. And then that should be it. Whether they accept it or not, just like in the previous steps, it, it shouldn't matter. 
Uh, it's just the process of taking ownership that's important. This is the ability to, if done properly, never have to do the rest of these steps ever again, because there won't be any wreckage. 10 and 11, mostly 10. This is my daily reprieval. This is me making sure that I don't build up a pile of bullshit that could sneak up and kill me. As we work the first nine steps, we prepare ourselves for the adventure of a new life. But when we approach step 10, we commence to put our AA way of living to practical use day by day in fair weather or foul. Then comes the acid test. Can we stay sober, keep an emotional balance, and live to good purpose under all conditions? I like that they worded it that way, under all conditions. At this point in my recovery, I should not be, un I should not be able to be shook off this tree. I should just continue to be able to climb regardless of what's happening. And it doesn't mean that I'm always climbing well. It doesn't mean that I'm always making progress, but I should be able to try. I should just continue to be on the tree moving forward. If I fuck up and I bounce back a couple couple branches, that's fine, but nothing should be able to shake me. A continuous look at our assets and liabilities and a real desire to learn and grow by this means are necessities for us. We alcoholics have learned this the hard way. More experienced people, of course, in all times and places, have practiced unsparing self-survey and criticism. For the wise have always known that no one can make much of his life until self-searching becomes a regular habit, until he is able to admit and accept what he finds, and until he patiently and persistently tries to correct what is wrong. When a drunk has a terrific hangover because he drank heavily yesterday, he cannot live well today. But there is another kind of hangover which will experience which we all experience whether we are drinking or not this is the kind of thing that i try to bring up to people that say well i've never done anything wrong with my drinking i've never harmed anybody it was only myself if you're drinking heavily the night before you're a mess the next day whether you feel like you are or not and that's the part you're not you're not presenting the world with the best version of yourself that is the emotional hangover the direct result of yesterday's and sometimes today's excesses of negative emotion. Anger, fear, jealousy, and the like. Again, this is negative emotion bullshit. It's not really how that works. If we would live serenely today and tomorrow, we certainly need to eliminate these hangovers. This doesn't mean we need to wander morbidly around in the past. It requires an admission and correction of errors now. Our inventory enables us to settle with the past. When this is done, we are really able to leave it behind us. When our inventory is carefully taken and we have made peace with ourselves, the conviction follows that tomorrow's challenges can be met as they come. Although all inventories are alike in principle, the time factor does distinguish one from another. There's the spot check inventory taken at any time of the day, whenever we find ourselves getting tangled up. Uh, I'm going to comment on this one. I actually, I had a coworker. I had, this is, this to me is the most important, the spot check thing. Being in practice of seeing I fucked up, I hurt this person's feelings. I should correct this and immediately correcting it in a way that's as hopefully as humble as possible. Like I shouldn't have done that. This was disrespectful and not live in the shame of having done it. So I had a coworker uh, at my last job that me and this person used to, we used to, you know, talk a lot about not necessarily politics, but like the idea of politics and how it's shaping our country. And we would just sort of talk about like, different fandoms and how they react to things and in systems and how corrupt or broken they are or how they could be fixed. It's just more bigger, like brushstroke type of conversations. And they posted something on their Facebook that I commented about in the same way that we usually comment. I didn't know, uh, based on our other conversations that she had posted this and then was not expecting kind of a, she got jumped on by a lot of people. They all sort of tore into her about this, this post. I don't remember the exact 
nature of the post. I just know that in my mind, this was something we always would talk about. And that's what I thought I was doing. But due to having had so many people tell her how her thinking was wrong, which is what we, me and this person did not do. We didn't attack each other's thinking. We just looked at ideas. She, she felt that's where I was coming from. I, I wasn't, but you know, she, she reacted that when she said, you know, this isn't what I intended when I posted it. I should just take it down. This is bullshit. Sometimes I just want to say things without having people jump all over me. And I sat with that for a while and I was actually, I was irritated was my first feeling. The first gut core feeling would be associated with irritation. I was embarrassed was what it really was because I'd hurt someone's feelings unintentionally and felt like that it was something that shouldn't have happened. So that, that a neat, that immediate, like kind of shame feeling of having hurt someone's feelings, causing me to feel like I should lash out in a way was almost where I went with it. But I did a self check. I stopped and I was like, hold on, what's actually going on here? What, what is causing this sort of, uh, division between us? Cause we always talk about these bigger kinds of concepts. And then I really listened to what she actually had to say to me, which was other people had jumped on her about this thing. And I realized what had happened. I, I am so used to being able to just go off on a subject that I didn't really consider like where the subject might be coming from, or it doesn't mean that at all times I should be able to go off on a subject without the possibility that it could cause harm. So I told her basically that I said, you know, me and you have these kinds of conversations on a regular basis. I didn't take into consideration that just because we do that, that gives me free reign to just talk about any of these subjects any way that I want to. And I should have considered the possibility that you felt differently about this topic than maybe other ones. I think it had to do with veganism or something. She was she's vegan. I take full responsibility for that. I'll do better next time. And that was it. I didn't fucking blame her for anything. That was not the intention. She didn't do anything wrong. I didn't, I mean, I could have like easily felt like, well, this is stupid that she's reacting that way. Why would she, you know, take this so seriously? But that's not, that's not healthy. It's not like I had to force myself to see her side either. I just accepted the fact that this, this subject, the way that we talked about it caused harm and it had a lot to do with it. A very real issue that I have of just feeling like I can go off on things without really considering what that might mean for other people. This took a lot of growth. It took a long time for me to get to a point to where I can do this even as even sometimes where I can do an immediate check. I sat down, I felt my emotions, I let them do whatever they were fucking doing. I did not react to them. And then I thought about the situation and I looked at the bigger, broader scope of it, just like this program describes, just like this step describes. And then I was immediately able to rectify it. Not something I was very comfortable doing even a couple years ago. Not something I was very good at doing. Not something I'm even perfect at doing. But something I learned, easily learned from this program. There's the one we take at day's end when we review the happenings of the hours just past. Here we cast up a balance sheet, crediting ourselves with things well done and chalking up debts where due. Then there are those occasions when alone or in the company of our sponsor or spiritual advisor, we make a careful review of our progress since the last time. Many AAs go in for annual or semi-annual house cleanings. Many of us also like the experience of an occasional retreat from the outside world where we can quiet down for an undisturbed day or so of self-overhaul and meditation. I do recommend that. That's what I do on my anniversaries as I spend time really going over the year. Aren't these practices joy killers as well as time consumers? Must AA spend most of their waking hours drearily rehashing their sins or omission 
uh, of a mission or commission? Well, hardly. The emphasis on inventory is heavily only because a great many of us have never really acquired the habit of accurate self-appraisal. Once this healthy practice has become grooved, it will be so interesting and profitable that the time it takes won't be missed. For these minutes and sometimes hours spent in self-examination are bound to make all the other hours of our day better and happier. And at length, our in inventories become a regular part of everyday living rather than something unusual or set apart. And I definitely agree with that part. The more often I'm doing this, the more regular I am at doing this, the less buildup there is of any of this. Like at the end of you know this last anniversary that I had, there was hardly anything for me to really go over because the year had not been full of bullshit. There had been hard times and good times and stuff I needed to work on, but I was not doing any of the garbage I was doing the year prior or even the first year of my sobriety. And a lot of that had to do with constant self-check-ins, self-appraisals, uh, owning up to my things immediately, doing it in a way that was for the benefit of the person I was apologizing to and not my own, doing them in a way that allowed me to to stop myself from doing them the next time. Um, a lot of, again, a lot of that just comes from this step. Before we ask what a spot check inventory is, let's look at the, the kind of setting in which such an inventory can do its work. It is a spirit, spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. It's if somebody hurts us and we are sore, we are in the we are in the wrong also. But are there no exceptions to this rule? What about justifiable anger? If somebody cheats us, aren't we entitled to be mad? Can't we be properly angry with self-righteous folk? For us of AA, these are dangerous exceptions. We have found that justified anger ought to be left to those better qualified to handle it. You can feel that justified anger. I'm telling you right now. You just, you know, you need to work on regulating how you act about it. Be pissed, man. Be upset. Let those emotions do their thing. Just don't do the things you used to do when you were pissed or upset. Few people have been more victimized by resentments than we have, than have we alcoholics. It mattered little whether resentments were justified or not. A burst of temper could spoil a day and a well-nursed grudge could make us miserably ineffective. Nor were we ever skilled in separating justified from unjustified anger. As we saw it, our wrath was always justified. Anger, that occasional luxury of more balanced people, could keep us on an emotional jag indefinitely. These emotional dry benders often led straight to the bottle. Other kinds of disturbances, jealousy, envy, self-pity, or hurt pride, did the same thing. A spot check inventory taken in the midst of such disturbances can be of very great help in quieting stormy emotions. Today's spot check finds its chief application to situations which arise in each day's march. The consideration of long-standing difficulties had better be postponed when possible to times deliberately set aside for that purpose. The quick inventory is aimed at our daily ups and downs, especially those where people or new events throw us off balance and tempt us to make mistakes. In all these situations, we need self-restraint, honest analysis of what is involved, a willingness to admit when the fault is ours, and an equal willingness to forgive when the fault is everywhere. That's a hard one for me, personally. We need not be discouraged when we fall into the error of our old ways, for these disciplines are not easy. We shall look for progress, not for perfection. Our first objective will be the development of self-restraint. This carries a top priority rating. When we speak or act hastily or rashly, the ability to be fair-minded and tolerant evaporates on the spot. One unkind tirade or one unwillful snap judgment can ruin our relationship with another person for the whole day, or maybe a whole year. And for me, in some cases, it's ruined relationships indefinitely. Nothing pays off like restraint of tongue and pen. It's interesting. This is exactly what the 
Stoic was, was leading into. It's good. Good that they tied together. Sometimes that happens. We must avoid quick-tempered quick criticism and furious, power-driven argument. The same goes for sulking or silent scorn. These are emotional booby traps baited with pride and vengefulness. Our first job is to sidestep the traps. When we are tempted by the bait, we should train ourselves to step back and think. For we can neither think nor act to good purpose until the habit of self-restraint has become automatic. And it's that habit of self-restraint that I'm talking about. The more often that we form that habit, the less often we'll actually feel the emotion that used to be tied to these dangerous things that we did. Disagreeable or unexpected problems are not the only ones that call for self-control. We must be quite as careful when we begin to achieve some measure of importance and material success. For no, I, I bypassed this by just not gaining either of those things. <laughs> For no people have ever loved personal triumphs more than we have loved them. We drank of success of, as of a wine, which could never fail to make us feel elated. When temporary good fortune came our way, we indulged ourselves in fantasies of still greater victories over people and circumstances. Thus blinded by prideful self-confidence, we were apt to play the big shot. Of course, people turned away from us, bored or hurt. Now that we're in AA and sober and winning back the esteem of our friends and people and business associates, we find that we need to exercise special vigilance. As an insurance against big shotism, we can often check ourselves by remembering that we are today sober only by the grace of God, and that any success we have may be any success we may be having is far more his success than ours. I mean, this is probably more coming from Bill Wilson. He was really struggling with his quote unquote fame and infamy in the program right around this time. Which is understandable. I mean, come on. The guy basically started an international phenomenon that literally helped people feel like they saved their own lives. It's going to affect your brain. It's going to affect your thinking. And the fact that he kept working through that is more par for the course. He This is his 10th step. Like he, this is him working through this whole book, The 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. In a lot of ways, it's him working through this feeling of like, big shotism, the, the, the shit that he may have caused by being of such a big shot. Finally, we begin to see that all people, including ourselves, are to some extent emotionally ill as well as frequently wrong. And then we approach true tolerance and see what real love for our fellows actually means. It will become more and more evident as we go forward that it is pointless to become angry or to get hurt by people who, like us, are suffering from the pains of growing up. Such a radical, radical change in our outlook will take time, maybe a lot of time, not many people can truthfully assert that they love everybody. Most of us must admit that we have loved but a few, that we have been quite indifferent to the many so long as none of them gave us trouble. And as for the remainder, well, we have really disliked or hated them. Although these attitudes are common enough, we AAs find we need something better, much better, in order to keep our balance. We can't stand if we hate deeply. The idea that we can be possessively loving of a few can ignore the many and can continue to fear or hate anybody has to be abandoned, if only a little at a time. I definitely can stand behind that. Like this, the feeling that I am capable of hating multitudes of people for just baseline beliefs that they might have. It usually it's like a knee jerk reaction to something where I see like a crowd of certain political supporters that I don't like immediately they're all bad in my head like that feeling is something i still struggle with most of the time the people there aren't doing aren't there out of malice they're not participating in these things because they hate not and not in the way that we might picture because the news tells us to or because certain media outlets might decide that for us that soundbite if you were to remove anything i've ever said previously there's no way that you could determine which side of the fence i'm on 
the fact that that could be said for both sides should just sort of stand. And the fact that it could be said about so many different things of division, uh, usually it's comes it comes from this very inhuman idea that the person who believes the thing is that thing we hate. And that's a lot of what this is talking about. We can try to stop making unreasonable demands upon what we love, those we love. We can show kindness where we have shown none. With those we dislike, we can begin to practice justice and courtesy, perhaps going out of our way to understand and help them. Whenever we fail any of these people, we can promptly admit it to ourselves always and to them also when the admission would be helpful. Courtesy, kindness, justice, and love are the keynotes by which we may come into harmony with practically anybody. And I would add really strong and honest communication. When in doubt, we can always pause saying, not my will, but thine be done. I mean, if you want to. And we can often ask ourselves, am I doing to others as I would have them do to me today? When evening comes, perhaps just before going to sleep, many of us draw up a balance sheet for the day. This is a good place to remember that inventory taking is not always done in red ink. It's a poor day indeed when we haven't done something right. Seriously, I can't stress enough how important this is. I can't stress enough. Not necessarily grateful for. This isn't, this is, I'm not talking about a gratitude list. But acknowledging those small victories is so important, even in a daily basis. And it's like, you know, just as much as I checked in on myself when I fucked up for a friend, checking in on myself when I did not react a certain way was good too. Checking in on those spot checks and thinking, you know, usually I would have done X and I didn't. And I'm so happy that this is the case. And trying to tie a new emotion to that reaction, tie, trying to tie a new feeling to what used to be, to me, a negative reaction to just chemicals. As a matter of fact, the waking hours are usually well filled with things that are constructive. Good intentions, good thoughts, and good acts are there for us to see. Even when we have tried hard and failed, we may chalk that up as one of the greatest credits of all. Under these conditions, the pains of failure are converted into assets. Out of them, we receive the simulation we need to go forward. Someone who knew what he was talking about once remarked that pain was the touchstone of all spiritual progress. Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, the whole idea that all all life is suffering and that uh, we can choose the suffering that we want and we can actively mitigate that suffering in a way where it doesn't hurt as bad uh, is, is along those lines. How heartily we AAs can agree with him, for we know that the pains of drinking had to come before sobriety and emotional turmoil before serenity. As we glance down the debt side of the day's ledger, we should carefully examine our motives in each thought or act that appears to be wrong. In most cases, our motives won't be hard to see and understand. When prideful, angry, jealous, anxious, or fearful, we acted accordingly. And that was that. Here we need only recognize that we did act or think badly, try to visualize how we might have done better, and resolve with God's help to carry these lessons over into tomorrow, making, of course, any amends still neglected. But in other instances, only the closest scrutiny will reveal what our true motives were. There are cases where our ancient enemy, rationalization, has stepped in and has justified conduct, which was really wrong. The temptation here is to imagine that we had good motives and reasons when we really didn't. We constructively criticize someone who needed it when our real motive was to win a useless argument or the person concerned not being present. We thought we were helping others to understand him when in all actuality, our true motive was to feel superior by pulling him down. We sometimes hurt those we love because we need to be taught a lesson when we really want to punish. We were depressed and complained we felt bad when in fact we were mainly asking for sympathy and attention. 
this odd trait of mind and emotion, this perverse wish to hide a bad motive underneath a good one, permeates human affairs from top to bottom. This subtle and elusive kind of self-righteousness can underline the smallest act or thought. Learning daily to spot, admit, and correct these flaws is the essence of character building and good living. An honest regret for harms done, a genuine gratitude for blessings received, and a willingness to try for better things tomorrow will be the per permanent assets we shall seek. Having so considered our day, not omitting to take note of things well done, and having searched our hearts with neither fear nor favor, we can truly thank God for the blessings we have received and sleep in good conscience. Tradition 10. Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name never, ought never be drawn in a public controversy. This one I'm a fan of too. Like this again, just is more kind of doubling down on the idea that like, look, we don't, just, we just don't get involved with shit. We don't allow people to, we don't allow political user leaders to to tie themselves to AA so that it'll somehow allow them to get votes. We don't allow, um, you know, corporations to do whatever they want with the the thing. It's it's ours. We're gonna keep it. People can't mess with it. Never since it began has AA Alcoholics Anonymous been divided by a major controversial issue. That's not true. It's fucking since they were divided about how they were going to talk about atheists. Give me a break. Nor has our fellowship ever publicly taken sides on any question in an embattled world. This, however, has been no earned virtue. It could almost be said that we were born with it, for as one old timer recently declared, practically never have I heard a heated religious, political, or reform argument among AA members. So long as we don't argue those matters privately, it's a cinch we never shall publicly. As by some deep instinct, we AAs have known from the very beginning that we must never, no matter what the provocation, publicly take sides in any fight, even a worthy one. All history affords us a spectacle of striving nations and groups finally torn asunder because they were designed for or tempted into controversy. Others fell apart because of sheer self-righteousness while trying to enforce upon the rest of mankind some millennium of their own specification. In our own times, we have seen millions die in political and economic wars, often spurred by religious and radical differences, racial differences, excuse me. We live in the imminent possibility of a fresh holocaust to determine how men shall be governed and how the products of nature and toil, and toil should be divided among them. That is the spiritual climate in which AA was born and by God's grace was nevertheless flourished. Let us reemphasize that this reluctance to fight one another or anybody else is not counted as some special virtue which makes, a, makes us feel superior to other people. Nor does it mean that the members of Alcoholics Anonymous, now restored as citizens of the world, or again back away from their individual responsibilities to act as they see the right upon the issues of our times. Okay, But when, we, when it comes to AA as a whole, that's quite a different matter. In this respect, we do not enter in a public controversy because we know that our society will perish if it does. We convince the survival and the spread of Alcoholics Anonymous to be something of far greater importance than the weight we could collectively throw back of any other cause. Since recovery from alcoholism is life itself to us, it is imperative that we preserve in full strength our means of survival. So look, it's obvious that there was some controversy in the inception of AA. And even in this book, they talk about some other controversies that occurred. The reason why these traditions exist because the controversies that occurred inside AA. What it also wouldn't be able to mention is that there's been controversies since. Not a lot, but there have been a few to make the news. And one of the most prominent one is the one I've talked about in Toronto, where they were trying to exclude secular AA from even being a thing and did for a time. It may still in some ways be doing. It became extremely public. There was news articles. There was footage and coverage. 
And it had a lot to do with the fact that this was not a thing that should be happening. They went publicly because they involved the fucking government and the AA general services. And it just, well, it's Canadian government, whatever they call that. And it was just a complete and utter mess, completely violating Tradition 10, probably other traditions along the way, many of them having to do with anonymity. Just it was just a total shit show, but they felt justified in doing it because they didn't like secular AA. They had nothing to do with the message, had nothing to do with what Alcoholics Anonymous was as a, as a group, like what what the per, primary purpose was. It was primarily because religious people didn't like secular AA. So while, yes, this book can say that, hey, we didn't, you know, have never done this kind of stuff. This has still happened. And, it, and I'm sure it won't be the last time something like this has happened. So AA is not completely derived and devoid of these kinds of controversies. Uh, but this step has still done a really good job of making sure that this isn't a regular occurrence. Maybe this sounds as though the alcoholics in AA had suddenly gone peaceful and became one great big happy family. Of course, this isn't so at all. Human beings that we are, we squabble. Before we leveled off a bit, AA looked more like one prodigious squabble than anything else, at least on the surface. A corporation director who had just voted a company expenditure of $100,000 would appear at an AA business meeting and blow his top over an outlay of $25 worth of needed postage stamps. Disliking the attempt of some of some to manage a group, half its membership might angrily rush off to form another group more to their liking. Elders temporarily turned Pharisee have sulked. Bitter attacks have been directed against people suspected of mixed motives. Despite their din, our puny rose never did AA a particle of harm. They were just part and parcel of learning to work and live together. Let it be noted, too, that they were almost always concerned with ways to make AA more effective, how to do the most good for the most alcoholics. The Washingtonian Society, a movement among alcoholics which started in Baltimore a century ago, almost discovered the answer to alcoholism. At first, the society was composed entirely of alcoholics trying to help one another. The early members foresaw that they should dedicate themselves to this whole aim. In many respects, the Washingtonians were akin to AA of today. Their membership passed 100,000 mark. Had they been left to themselves and had they stuck to their one goal, they might have found the rest of the answer. But this didn't happen. Instead, the Washingtonians permitted politicians and reformers, both alcoholics and non-alcoholics, to use the society for their own purposes. Abolition, abolition of slavery, for example, was a stormy political issue then, since Washingtonian speakers violently and publicly took sides on this question. Maybe the society could have survived the abolition controversy, but it didn't have a chance from the moment it determined to re, uh, reform Americans' drinking habits. When the Washingtonian became temperance crusaders, within a few hundred uh, years, they had completely lost their effectiveness in helping alcoholics. The lesson to be learned from the Washingtonians was not overlooked by Alcoholics Anonymous. As we surveyed the wreckage of that movement, early AA members resolved to keep our society out of public controversy. Thus was laid the cornerstone for Tradition 10. Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. I mean, I don't think it was like from a lesson from the Washingtonians. I'm sure, though, that they did borrow some things from them. So it seems, for the most part, these these uh, these episodes have become just a little bit shorter due to the nature of the 12 by 12 and me talking a bit less at times. Uh, I will say that I think this is still roughly an hour, so it's still good. I think it's a very sweet spot of of time frame for my rambling here. What I I want to remind everybody is you can reach out to me via Facebook. Uh, an atheist reads the big book of AA. You can email me at one atheist in AA at gmail.com. Uh, 
I'm going to be honest. Uh, this is step 10. This is um, this is kind of a countdown episode. I have made the decision after a lot of back and forth with myself and like where I'm at with things and what I want to do uh, moving forward with this podcast and moving forward with like my recovery. I am making the decision that that at the that the 12th step is going to be the last episode. And I know that there's people that are really finding a lot of use in this. I also find that trying to come up with ways to continue on after this for me and my journey right now, it just doesn't make, it doesn't fit. I don't know how else to really explain it. There's only so many things I'm really going to be able to talk about. I'm finding it more difficult for me to not just repeat the same things. That's a lot of it. Um, another aspect of it is that this, this will have fulfilled my duty to myself that I was going to at least read the literature of the big book and the literature of the 12 by 12 and then make the decision at the end of that if I wanted to continue. So I've wanted to quit a couple times, but I refused to, to stop until I at least finished what I had set out to do. And so at the 12th episode, that will be the end of it. That will be what I've set out to do. Um, I find that even though this podcast may never have huge numbers and may never reach millions of people, that the people that it's found have found real value out of it. And that even though I might stop making new episodes, if they're if you're going to stay in AA, then the core concepts of the program through the eyes of an atheist are still there. They're not going to change just because I stop making another episode. The, the concepts are going to help others who may need it and may find value in it. I just find myself moving on. I know this is probably a part of like this continuation I have in my life of just moving on from things. But I feel very confident that I have, like I said, fulfilled the duty I set out for myself. I'm not quitting before anything. I'm I'm stopping the podcast when I originally intended to. There was an idea of keeping it going just because I felt it was helping people. And I still feel like people are getting value out of this. But I also feel like that if you've reached the end of this, and you've made it to step 12 after all that I've put out on to the world on these little these podcasts then you're I mean you're safe on your own you've got it you can tell other people about the podcast and they can listen to it and maybe they can find the same value but I don't really have much more I can offer at this time this is it this is all of me literally all of me I've put absolutely every bit of me in every single one of these I've talked about every aspect of my life in essentially every way that I could imagine and while I feel satisfied and excited and grateful and humble that anybody listened to these and that anybody's ever reached out and just told me this has helped them in some way, I also feel a bit drained by it. There is an aspect of this where it's, I mean, I'm comfortable and fine with sharing basically my entire life, but I'm also moving away from so much of what caused me to do it. Yes, the feeling of helping people is still there and I will continue to do that in other ways. I don't know what that will look like immediately after this, but that aspect of me is just ingrained in me. That's just who I am. That's how I stay sober. That's not going to change. But finding a way to deliver my entire life as it stands every single week is, uh, it's tough, man. It's tough. It's been draining and it's been difficult as much as it's been rewarding. And I don't want this to seem like I am just giving up on some aspect of my recovery because that's just not the case. 
this is me just moving on to the next thing, moving forward, growing into whatever comes next. Um, again, I am thankful for every single person that's ever listened to this. And I still got two episodes to go. Maybe I end up finding some groove, uh, but it's not really looking that way. I didn't want to uh, just announce it immediately that this is it. I'm done on step 12. I wanted to kind of ease into it. I'll probably bring it up again on step 11 on the next episode. But, um, you know, thank you. And I'll be thanking you every episode. Whoever's listened, whoever's continued to listen, whoever's told a friend to listen, thank you. All of you. Seriously. This has been an unexpectedly amazing experience. The good and the bad of it. So uh, with that, you know, again, I've put my socials out, my my, my yeah socials out there. Those are going to remain open. I will continue to check those even after I've, I've stopped making episodes. So if you're hearing this for the first time, and you just now got to the end of this, and this is at some point in the future, and you feel like you should send me a message just to say thank you, do it. I will I will continue to have access to those things uh, until I'm no longer allowed to have access. So there's still that outlet. And if you, and if you get to this point and you want to just tell me, hey, fuck you for quitting, do that too. I feel confident that I'm doing these for the reasons that are best for me. Uh, and I feel confident that my decision to stop doing it after the 12 step is what's best for me as well. So I can take the hate. I can take the heat. And with that, thank you. I appreciate all of you. Thank you for keeping me sober one more day.